Hey everybody, welcome back to the Liberty on Fire podcast. This is your host, Libertarian Tony. So today, I have a couple of things on my mind that I want to talk to you about. One of them is Joe Biden as a candidate. Will he last until November? Hmm, that's a good question. When you see Joe doing these online interviews, it's a little more than him just feeling out of place with the technology. He's having trouble completing sentences and following a train of thought to its end. I don't remember seeing those sorts of things in him five or ten years ago when he was with Obama. Maybe he did a little bit, but nowhere near to this extent. So I really think Joe is not aging so well. And what does that tell you about November? Because now the choices are Creepy Joe or Donald Trump. Donald is at least a character you know, and it'll be up to the voters to decide whether you think he did a decent job over the past four years, whether he did a decent job helping with the coronavirus pandemic. The voters will make this decision and judge him for that. Part of the problem that some people, I think, have with Joe Biden, however, is that he is not the man you knew under Obama. The Joe Biden on TV now is not necessarily the same man, and I think a lot of people out there truly believe this, but many of which just won't admit it on air or during an interview or just during casual questioning. I think that Joe has lost more than just a few steps. I really think the power brokers behind the scenes are worried about this man being able to serve a four-year term. And if more than a few people are worried about this, well then, how is that going to play out with the voters? Right? Because at least you have some sort of track record with Trump, whether you like him or hate him or somewhere in between, it doesn't really look like Trump has lost a step. He's doing these White House press briefings basically every day on the coronavirus pandemic, and he's taking questions uh, left and right, and he's giving some good answers, and uh, he's smacking down some reporters, but... Can you see Joe Biden doing something like that? Can you see Joe Biden being able to fend off reporters with uh, difficult questions? I don't think so. I think Biden would have trouble with even some simple questions. And just getting an answer out nowadays seems like it's tough for him. How is he going to be able to deal with uh, tough situations and explain things to the public in a way that makes sense when he has trouble finishing sentences? So yeah, if it's not just you and me seeing this, then my guess is millions of other people are seeing this as well. Regardless of whether they want to admit it or not, I believe that's going to affect how people vote in November. Now, that doesn't mean they'll go out and vote for Trump, but maybe they just won't vote at all. And then we have to look at this whole Bernie supporter issue. I bet you many of Bernie supporters feel betrayed by him and a lot of us have seen videos of some of these Bernie supporters saying that they won't vote for Biden. So just because Bernie came out and endorsed Joe, that doesn't necessarily mean that those votes are going to carry over. Does Joe Biden really excite anybody out there? Come on, Democrats. Could you possibly be excited about this old white guy who should be in an assisted living community asking for his medications and slippers? I think some people are probably excited that it's anybody but Trump, right? And some people would rather vote for a cat to be in the White House over Trump. But you don't have that option. 
you have to now vote either for Joe Biden or Donald Trump. Well, I guess you could vote for whoever the libertarian candidate is or some other independent, but those numbers don't make up a significant portion of the total to make a difference. I think you should vote for the libertarian candidate just to send a message to Washington that you want something different. But again, I just don't see Joe being this great hope for the Democratic Party. If he was the same Joe Biden as he was under the early years of Obama, well then that might be a different story, but he's clearly not the same person. Something is wrong there, and I believe a lot more people see it than care to admit. So I guess in the end, Joe's going to be the nominee of the, at the Democratic National Convention. I mean, if even a convention is still going to be held, I mean, maybe it'll be postponed or canceled or it'll be online, who knows. But the Democratic Party has their man now, and given that more than a few people think that Joe probably still can't go the distance, even though he's the nominee, so what do the power brokers behind the scenes have to decide next? Well, if they decide not to replace Joe Biden with someone, then they have to think of a strong vice president. It's probably going to be a bad idea if they pick some no-name person that really hasn't been in the spotlight because if a lot of people think that Joe can't make it four years, well, then you're basically voting for the vice, uh, the vice president, right? The vice presidential candidate at that point because right? you expect them to take over for Joe and that's going to be tough to do against an incumbent like Donald Trump. If, however, on the other hand, the power brokers decide to replace Joe sometime before November, well, then the logical next question is, with who? Who could possibly come in at this point and take over for Joe? I'm sure many of you have seen stories floated or floating around about the New York state governor Cuomo, but he has already come out and said that he's not interested, for whatever that's worth. With enough pressure and enticement, he could jump in. But I'm not too sure Cuomo could beat Trump at this point because... How many times in press conferences have you seen Cuomo come out and actually say what a good job Donald Trump is doing, okay? So then he would have to kind of walk all that back. What about going with someone like Hillary Clinton? Well, I think that's kind of a little far-fetched. I bet you a lot of people are tired of seeing her name thrown around and probably tired of having her in the spotlight. But she can claim, to her credit, that she did beat Donald uh, with the popular vote in 2016, and no one else can say that. Some people are still mentioning Michelle Obama's name. Uh, yeah, for me, this doesn't make that much sense. The Obamas already have a ton of fame and money, and they're treated like celebrities wherever they go. They are enjoying their $15 million mansion, a uh, beachfront property over there in Nantucket, so why would you want to give that up and go back to Washington, D.C.? I wouldn't. I would just write another book and get paid hundreds of thousands of dollars for making speeches. That's what I would do. So now we have to talk about this new round of endorsements going around for Joe Biden. In the past week, Obama and Elizabeth Warren endorsed Joe Biden, but these endorsements are kind of worthless at this point. They basically waited until no one else was in the race, and then they came out and supported and endorsed Creepy Joe. And this is the same Creepy Joe who's having trouble keeping his hands off women. That's basically a non-endorsement or an endorsement of whoever happens to be the Democratic nominee. 
The whole purpose of endorsing someone is that you're picking one person over another, that you have a preference because you think someone will make a much better candidate for the country over someone else. But when you wait until there's only one person left in the race, and then you make your endorsement, it's kind of worthless. And by now, I'm sure many of you have seen these allegations of sexual assault by Joe Biden. I think we're up to almost seven women now. Well, maybe it depends on which networks you watch. If you're watching Fox, well then, yeah, it's covered. But if you're watching pretty much any other station, they really aren't pushing this story. He's the nominee, so they have to run cover for him now. The same stations that went after Justice Kavanaugh so hard about an alleged assault from 30 years ago with no evidence or witnesses are refusing to cover this very real story. And did you catch the New York Times goof from the other day? So New York Times ran an article that said, and I'm going to quote this as a quote, The Times found no pattern of sexual misconduct by Mr. Biden beyond the hugs, kisses, and touching that women previously said made them uncomfortable. Uh Uh-oh, what the hell is that? No sexual misconduct besides the sexual misconduct we already know about? That's freaking hilarious. How does the Times run away from this one? How does Creepy Joe run away from this one? Not very fast, I'm guessing. Anyway, let's continue to follow this story and see what happens. Okay, now I'm sorry. I have to go back to the virus a little bit. So I'm going to change my tune a little bit about the coronavirus. Well, maybe it's not that much of a change. Anyway, I'm going to liken it more towards a regular influenza-type respiratory illness than I maybe would have a month ago. I remember a while back sending text messages to friends and family about wearing a mask. I said it was probably unnecessary when you go outside doing outdoor activities, that sort of thing. But if you're on a long flight, and especially if people are coughing, well then either you should wear a mask or ask the person coughing to wear a mask. Anyway, let's get back to the influenza comparison. If you look at the numbers, the regular old influenza killed about 80,000 people in 2018. Right now, the total number of coronavirus deaths in the United States is about 28,000. And by my estimate, and of course a somewhat educated guess, I think we're going to top out pretty soon. So now, if we are topping out, that means we're going to start coming down the other side of the bell curve. And what does that mean? Well, maybe at best another 25 to 30,000 deaths, and that would bring us to a total of somewhere between 50 and 60,000, possibly. So that's my current guesstimate. If that's all we're going to see from this new virus, well then, I guess if you compare it to the flu back in 2018, you would say that it killed less people than the flu, right? We won't know for sure what the death rate is compared to the flu until we have some sort of rapid and cheap antibody test, which I think several companies are working on, and one of them I think is Abbott Labs. So I guess if you wanted to go out and buy some Abbott stock, that might be a good idea. But let's get back uh, into the virus talk and away from uh, financial advice. Let's say you test a large number of people in a certain area. For example, you test 10 to 20% of the population in a town of, let's say, 200,000. And you find a large percentage of the people you tested actually have the antibody to the virus. Well, what does that mean? What that tells you is that they got the disease, but 
either had very mild symptoms or no symptoms at all. And then you have to extrapolate those numbers out to other populations nearby. And you do this sort of thing all over the country. And you make these extrapolations to the best of your ability. And you get some really smart statisticians and epidemiologists involved. And you come up with the total possible number of patients who had the disease. And then that becomes your new denominator that you put underneath the total number of deaths. And that gives you the new death rate. And I think... By the time this is all said and done, I think the death rate is going to be something similar to the regular old influenza. And of course, I'm not the only one saying this. Yes, I am an MD, but there are plenty of other docs, scientists, researchers, epidemiologists, a whole bunch of other medical professionals around the world and around the country who think overall that this death rate is going to be very comparable to the influenza virus that we see every year. Anyway, so you probably heard some terminology in the news about this coronavirus, something along the lines of it producing a cytokine storm. Well, let's talk about that and talk about what puts you in the ICU. Basically, if you have to be admitted to the hospital and put on a ventilator in the intensive care unit, you are there for respiratory distress. In other words, you're having some pretty damn hard trouble breathing. So, Without getting too scientific, let's talk about what the virus does to your lungs. So influenza, as well as this coronavirus, although it can affect your entire body, will put you in the ICU when it attacks your lungs. Right? So this virus uses your own cells to reproduce and make more little viral pathogens. And as your body recognizes this, your immune system kicks in and starts to fight back. Well, that's where you can get into trouble breathing. Your own immune system, some of those white blood cells who are fighting the virus, they release these little particles called cytokines. What cytokines do is cause inflammation. They attract more white blood cells to the area to fight the pathogens, and then those white blood cells release more cytokines, calling for more immune cells to come and help the fight. Well, eventually, there's so much inflammation in the lungs that you have trouble breathing and you can't exchange CO2 for oxygen. So what does this inflammation look like in the lungs? Well, all you really have to know is that you get fluid or edema in the lungs with tons of these inflammatory or immune cells. Okay, so that's what we see on chest x-ray and on chest CTs. We see something that looks like inflammation in the lungs, and generally we can't tell what's causing it although the coronavirus does have a few features that help us sometimes. Not always, but sometimes. That could suggest it could be this COVID-19. Anyway, well, a lot of different viruses, when they attack your lung tissue, produce a somewhat similar reaction. And you can imagine that if you have underlying COPD, heart disease, diabetes, high blood pressure, or some other systemic disease, this significant amount of inflammation in your lungs could end up killing you. So yes, that's why if you are in the older population or have one or more underlying medical conditions or both, well then you need to take steps in order to protect yourself. And although we do see some cases in younger adults, most of the time these patients don't end up in the ICU and only end up with mild symptoms. They may feel exactly like they got the flu, same sort of symptoms, fever, maybe a headache and a cough, body aches. Most of the time, the symptoms are short-lived and last a few days. In addition, 
Something else that's almost non-existent with this disease are infections in children. Now, that doesn't mean the kids can't get this new virus and pass it on, but chances of them actually showing symptoms and chances of them ever going to the ICU for treatment are almost zero. So that's what I wanted to say about this virus up until this point. Yes, we will continue to learn more about it and learn hopefully more about the actual cause. Did it actually come from a virology lab, a research lab in the Wuhan district in China? Because there's more and more evidence pointing in that direction. So the last thing I wanted to talk to you today about was this whole idea of government shutdowns. Whether it's from the state government or the federal government, 99% of this government shutdown business is completely unnecessary in my opinion. Now in this podcast, I don't want to get into the constitutionality of the shutdowns, uh, whether from the federal or, or state level, and whether opening up the economy is a federal or state decision. We can save that for another episode. I want to get into some of the political analysis of shutting down a local government. Now, you can imagine that as a politician, if you decide not to do very much and people are dying from this disease in your area, your district, well, then other politicians and a lot of people may be calling for your head. So initially, politicians are incentivized to do something, even if it's wrong because they don't want to be blamed afterwards for someone's death for not doing enough. So in general, governments and politicians most of the time will err on the side of doing more and not less. And this is probably our fault, because over the years, voters have asked government to do more and more for them rather than less. The idea of being some kind of independent, rugged American is almost gone by the wayside at this point. Nowadays, most people want to be able to call the government to fix something rather than fix it themselves, which, of course, I think is a big mistake to rely on a profoundly corrupt institution to fix things, that individuals should really be able to kind of fix for themselves. So let's get back to the politicians. Anyway, many of these politicians and people of notoriety like Bill Gates, they want to be seen as saviors. They have a certain sort of ego that they need to have stroked. And because people like Dr. Fauci and Bill Gates are in favor of vaccines and certain types of government interventions into your lives, this is what they advise governments and your president to do. And for the moment, let's put aside some of the scary things that Dr. Fauci and Bill Gates have said, such as carrying some sort of vaccination card, uh, proving that you, you have the antibody to the virus or that you've gotten the vaccine, or some sort of digital implant in your body telling uh, whichever government or bureaucratic agency that wants to look whether you're up to date in all your shots or not. I mean, some of these things are just downright crazy. And when you think about it, somewhat similar to you walking around with the Star of David on your shoulder and a serial number tattooed into your forearm. Anyway, so yes, you have people who do research for a living on infectious diseases, such as Dr. Fauci, who really don't understand the implications of shutting down the economy and what that does to people who end up losing their job, their livelihood, and their life savings. This doctor, as smart and as famous as he is, even admitted on an interview the other day that he doesn't understand economics. But all that has to be taken into account when you're planning some sort of government reaction to deal with this virus. Remember, this is the main guy advising Trump and political leaders around the country on their response to the virus. 
So what we're seeing are shutdowns of businesses, large parts of the economy, along with this extreme social distancing and separating of people. And some of the results we have seen, well, it is preventing the virus from spreading in a significant way. So yes, that temporarily is a good thing. This will hopefully prevent certain medical systems from getting overloaded all at once from cases of coronavirus. However, it's also preventing herd immunity from developing faster. Well, what the hell is herd immunity? Herd immunity is when you have enough people that have either gotten the virus and survived or have gotten the vaccine and now have antibodies to the virus and are basically immune to it. And these people are out there in the community and they can no longer get infected by the same exact virus again and therefore are incapable of spreading that virus to other people. That's herd immunity. And that's what a vaccine is supposed to help with. Now, a vaccine is just bits and pieces of a pathogen that your body, uh, your immune system is supposed to recognize, and then they basically tuck away memory of those little bits and pieces of the virus for safekeeping if you happen to get exposed to the virus at some future date. Well, then your body can quickly ramp up antibodies to the virus because your immune system has seen it before, and you can fight it off much easier and faster because of that prior vaccination. Well, all this social distancing closing of businesses, and the like, is preventing natural herd immunity from happening on a large scale. And this may mean that we could see another large outbreak of this virus at some future date, possibly later this year. For example, if only a few hundred thousand people get infected with this virus because of this social distancing, and let's say 50,000 people die, well, when businesses start to reopen up and people start to return more towards a normal life, we could easily see another outbreak of this disease which could kill possibly just as many people, right? Because herd immunity was prevented from occurring earlier. However, if alternatively only the elderly and at-risk patients were taking measures to distance themselves from getting the virus, and many multiple millions of younger people contracted the virus and survived, well, then it would be unlikely for there to be a second large outbreak of the disease. The herd, this younger and healthier population, wouldn't be able to transmit the disease to this at-risk group because so many of them would have already gotten the disease and developed antibodies to it, and therefore the herd immunity would be in place and much more widespread, thus making it unlikely that these at-risk people would contract it to any significant degree. Okay, so what am I trying to say here? What we could have done was socially distance the at-risk population, the elderly and people with underlying medical conditions, and the younger and healthier people could go about their daily lives and businesses, could be kept open, and yes, many of them would have contracted the disease, but that's okay, because they were at little risk of death or any significant complication of the virus in the first place, and therefore this younger and healthier herd is what is needed to keep the virus from coming back and spreading significantly in the future. Since we haven't done that, since we don't yet have a vaccine for this virus to help with this immunity, I think we're at risk for this virus coming back and causing harm again in the future. These are the kinds of bad decisions you get when you have a top-down, one-size-fits-all approach to a problem. You see, government doesn't really understand the phrase of different strokes for different folks. Government is a hammer and looks at all problems like a nail. 
This is exactly why you don't want the federal government making these decisions for the whole nation, and this is why you don't want every region in a state to be treated the same way. Some states that did not completely shut down may actually be better protected in the future than states such as California and Michigan who went overboard on their social distancing. Only time will tell, I guess. And when you break this down to the county level or city level, it's really obvious that not all counties and cities needed to take the same approach because there are huge differences in the numbers of cases and deaths when you compare, for example, New York City to upstate New York. And now you also have to take into account all the economic and personal tragedies because of these extensive shutdowns. We now have about 20 million people out of work, a ballooning national debt, destroyed businesses, destroyed lives, retirement savings are gone, an increase in the number of suicides, an increase in pain and suffering from delayed medical care, and no herd immunity to keep the virus from striking again. So was the government overreaction really necessary? Was the cure to prevent the surge on the medical community really necessary? I'm saying this could have been handled very differently and much more focused to certain regions or cities. So, was the cure worse than the disease? Maybe. Okay guys, thank you for listening, and let's remember to keep those fires of liberty burning bright. (laughs) 